0: We've been going through the book of Matthew. Uh, We took a short little break a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 23, but uh, we are now in Matthew chapter 18. We're covering verses one through 20, and I had someone reach out to me this week and ask, man, there's a lot that you're covering in this. And that's true, but if you look at your Bible, especially if if you have a red letter edition, you're gonna see that Jesus asked a question. And then verses 1 through 20 is that response. It's one response. And actually, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this chapter people preach from very specific things. But what can easily happen is is that you take one of these chunks and you pull it out of the message that Jesus was preaching and teaching to his disciples. And I started realizing that for myself as I was walking through this, was like, wow, when you get how Jesus is answering this very specific question, it helps you actually understand some very common passages in a very new and powerful way. To help kind of set the tone and trajectory and to use kind of an illustration, I just wanted to read a quote from uh, a book that, that I'd read a number of years ago. Um, just to kind of set things up as we go through Matthew 18, one through 20. This is a book by Francis Chan, it's called Letters to the Church, it's chapter four. We live in a time when people go to a building on Sunday mornings, attend an hour-long service, and call themselves members of the church. Does that sound shocking to you? Of course not, this is perfectly normal. It's what we grew up with, We all know good Christians go to church. But have you you ever read the New Testament? Do you find anything in Scripture that is even remotely close to the pattern we have created? Do you find anyone who went to church? Try to to imagine Paul and Peter speaking like we do today. Hey, Peter, where do you go to church now? "Ah, I go to the river. They have great music, and I love the kids' program. Cool. Can I check out the church next Sunday? I'm not getting much out of mine. Totally. I'm not going to be there next Sunday because little Matthew has soccer. But how about the week after that? Sounds good. Hey, do they have a singles group? It's comical to think of Paul and Peter speaking like this, yet that's a normal conversation among Christians today. Why? There are so many things wrong with the above conversation, I don't even know where to start. The fact that we have reduced the sacred mystery of church to a one-hour service we attend is staggering. Yet, that's the way I defined it for years. I didn't know anything different. It's what everyone did, so I didn't think to question it. So what he's getting at, and where it ties in into Matthew 18, is the relationships we have between one another, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and what that means for us living as the church. What he's not saying, just to make clear, in case you've never read that book in particular is he's not saying that gathering on a Sunday is a bad thing. What he's saying is if that's the only way you engage with the church, you're missing the point. Because the church, like Mike was saying, is is not just simply uh, an event you show up to once a week, it's a people living out the gospel message. And even here at Radiant, like. We do our Sunday gatherings, we see that as the engine of our worship during the week. We also gather in our small groups that we call gospel communities. That's how we live it out together. But even those, like those are, that's, that's part of the structure we put together. Structure is good, but if, if that's all the church is limited to, you're missing the point. And so we've taught on this concept before and we address it periodically from the pulpit that's why we have an identity statement. The reason we have an identity statement is it's because it's who we are. That we're a family of missionary servants who be and make disciples that make disciples. So being the church is much more than a weekly meeting time. It's life together in Jesus. How do we do that? What does it look like? Especially when we have so many different opinions. Like the crazy thing about church is usually you're bringing together a lot of people who have different perspectives on different things, but the one thing that unifies them together is Jesus. So in one of the most powerful sections that we're looking at in Scripture, Jesus teaches his disciples how to be and live together as siblings under Jesus' power and authority. And our primary way of interacting together is through humility. But not humility as everyone else defines it, but as Jesus defines it. To be humble is to be secure in the greatness of Jesus and to fight for unity in that greatness as a body of believers. So we're going to look at two things today in this passage. We're going to look at what it means to be humble like a child and to live humbly towards your siblings, your brothers, and your sisters in Christ. So let's start at the beginning, Matthew 18. We're just going to look at the verse, first four verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, "'Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, "'you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.'" Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is addressing pride as the main issue. You see, the disciples have been wigged out, if you will say. In fact, if you back up just a couple of verses, um, back into 17, verse 22, you'll see that for the second time, Jesus talks about that he's going to suffer, that he's gonna die, and that he's going to rise again. And it says at the end of that, that they were greatly distressed. It means like, okay, they hear what Jesus is saying, but they've imagined something completely different. Their idea is like, Jesus is gonna come in, kick Rome's butt, and set up this whole new kingdom, and so when they put themselves at the center of that idea, they're wondering, okay, what's my position going to be? Like, something dramatic is going to be happening soon, and how am I in the best position? Uh, We know this because the same story is told in Mark and Luke. So in Mark 9, 34, it says, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And in Luke 9, 46, it says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So, which among the disciples? Which of them is the, the greatest? Who's the one who will ascend to the highest heights? Who can handle that type of power, prestige, prominence? Who can really handle being the the greatest. And so out of that out of that argument out of this 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 prideful desire comes this question, okay Jesus, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so to address this main question that he spends the next few verses talking about, he uses his main metaphor, a child. So he calls a child into their midst and I don't know if the child stood up there the whole time. I mean, part of me wanted to do that, is to find someone, maybe pull them out of Radiant Kids and be like, all right, come up here. You can stand right here in the middle for the entire time. And maybe, maybe they'd still stay still the entire time. I have no idea. Um, but he has them there so everyone can see this child and says, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus is hitting hard right out of the gate. Unless you have a family connection where you are dependent by faith on God for your position and authority in life, you have no hope. You will not be able to enter into God's kingdom. If you're gonna try and be dependent in this life on, on yourself, on something other than Christ, he's like, you won't be able to come in. So he's addressing this this humility, and especially when you think about it from their position. Like Middle East Israel first century, family hits in a whole different way than it does in Fairbanks, Alaska in 2023. Because as a child, you're completely dependent on the authority figures who are above you. Your identity, it wasn't like, oh, here's this child. Like if I took my... Son or my daughter was like, Yeah, here's Layden or here's Cora Lee. For them, it wasn't like, Oh, they have this identity over here on their own. Their identity is in their family. And, and the family carried a weight, but the child isn't the one who leads. And, and, and where the identity comes from is really in the one who is leading the family, it's in the father. So when we look at this passage and why Jesus is using this illustration that's going to drive everything else that he's saying, he's saying, you've got to become like that child in the sense that you have to be dependent upon the Father, that your strength doesn't come from you, it comes from the Father. Your name doesn't come from you, it comes from the Father. Why does this make someone great? So not only does does he say like, well, he can't even enter the kingdom of heaven, but he says whoever he says in verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because when someone humbles themselves like this, where are they finding their greatness? They're finding their greatness in the Father and someone who's greater than they are. If, if, and, and you can see this in family dynamics, right? If, if, if my son or my daughter is like going to go off on their own, if one of them like decides to rebel, like my son who's six years old, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to take off up north, and I'm going to go live on my own as a six-year-old. He's not going to get very far, and he's not going to be very great. But if he goes with his dad... Well, his dad can provide a lot of things. His dad can provide a car. maybe I can rent a cabin on uh, the, you know, for the borough and get something that's warm, provide food, teach him different things. His greatness has now been magnified, not because he's great, but because his father is great. And so how much more for us as followers of Jesus, when we take that position of humility and put our dependence on Jesus, that's where our greatness is found. It's found in our Father. It's found in the one who's head of the church which is Jesus. So when we become that dependent, we're dependent on someone who's truly greater and can hold that position of greatness that we cannot hold. You find greatness because your greatness is on someone else and not yourself. So in John one twenty six through 27, John the Baptist, who arguably is one of the greatest people in the Gospels, said this about Jesus. He said, I I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I mean, just look at John John the Baptist, his storyline throughout the Gospels. Like, it'd be easy to, to point and say, oh man, look how great John the Baptist is. But what he does is he says, no, 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 I'm not great. You've got to see Jesus. He's truly great. And so... John the Baptist had a greater power because his greatness wasn't his at all. It was all in Jesus. So the first thing that we learn from that is when we are humble, we recognize where our true position and power lie. They lie in Jesus. And when we're humble, we also fall under the Father's protection. So look at verse 5 through 7. It says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So when you see such child... In verse 5, or in verse 6, it says little ones. That is not talking about literal children in a certain age range. That is talking about followers of Jesus who have become like children. So it's talking about followers of Jesus. And when we think about that fa- family dynamic, it's just, again, like the metaphor with the child. It's, they don't have an identity on their own. They're carrying their family's identity when they go around. And so, similarly, as followers of Jesus, when we're humble and put our position and authority on Jesus, then when people welcome us in, especially when they welcome us in because they see Jesus at work in our life, they're not just simply welcoming us, they're welcoming Jesus. And then on the flip side of things, when someone is tempting or drawing us away from the lifestyle that Jesus has called us to, you can hear the power of the Father in this this verse when he says, when, when Jesus teaches them, it would be better for that person tempting one of mine to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Like, what he's getting at here would be very similar to, um, for my daughter who's 11, if someone came up to her in school and began introducing drugs to her and teaching her what it meant to sell drugs, my response as a good father would be similar to this. It would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea for what you did to my daughter. And so Jesus very much is saying, like, if, if, the, if those of the world operating under the one who's over the world, Satan, as we read about in 1 John, if they're operating in that and they're tempting those who are mine to go away from me, That carries severe consequences. And why do we need the Father's protection? Well, that's what verse 7 is getting at. Woe to the world for temptations. Like what evil does to our world, real sin and rebellion in this world, it primarily comes through temptations. That's what we see Satan doing at the very beginning towards Adam and Eve. He tempts them away from following God's direction and will for their life and tempts them towards something else. And that invited evil to spread, to be a contagion, to corrupt this world. It's what is destroying humanity. I have a background in history, and there's this like cute little phrase that people will use, like those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But because of sin and evil in the world, without Jesus Christ, we will keep repeating things. It's no wonder that over 4,000 plus years of human history that we keep making things worse and worse and worse. And we're seeing that today. And hopefully that would make you ask the question, how do we make this better? Because the severity of sin is something that we cannot take lightly because it destroys our relationship with God. So as a good father, God is going to come against evil. He's going to come against those who tempt his sons and his daughters away from him. But when we're also humble, not only do we have a a father who cares about his family, but we take sin seriously in our own lives. So verse 8 and 9, it says, And if your hand or foot causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Sin serious. The consequence of sin is death. Death in many forms. Right, we see death happen in our lives when we go against God in a, in a physical sense, like a physical death reality. We see death happen in relationships where sin enters in and it drives us apart. How people can react like the disciples are in pride toward each other, but Jesus highlights the the ultimate end where sin drives, and that is an eternal death, that we see Scripture to describe as fire. And that, or in verse 9, the hell of fire. And when we look at that, there's a lot of debate that people have about exactly what that means. But the thing, when you read Scripture, that you have to take seriously is that hell is eternal, and that it's going to be awful. Like, That eternal separation from the Father, from God, is something we should not take lightly. And as followers of Jesus, it's something that we need to not only deal with in our sin on a personal level, but that as a community, as brothers and sisters, that we are helping each other in dealing with sin in our life. And and Jesus goes so far as to say, like, you have to be on the attack of sin in such a way that it's like, you have to deal drastically with it. Not that he's talking in a literal sense of like, hey, gouge your eye off or like take the saw and, and cut your hand off. That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is like, are you dealing seriously with sin? Are you going to go to lengths to make sure that it doesn't have a grip on your heart, have a grip on your soul? And it's worth becoming the least in the world to become secure in the greatness of Jesus. Jesus. So, if we pause here for a minute and wonder, okay, well, this idea of being humble, like a child, in God's family, what does that look like? Why, why, how does that even apply to today? Especially coming off with something as, as serious of nature as like verse 7 through 9. It should emphasize how desperately we need to depend on Jesus, his authority, and his position. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, this passage, Jesus has just highlighted the severe nature of evil. How do we deal with it in this world? We have to go back to how Je- what Jesus was doing. is He's calling his disciples to be humble he is also pointing to what he is doing here on this earth. So in Philippians 2, we see this highlighted. Philippians 2 says this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus would go to extreme lengths to provide us a way for sin not to dominate us. In our life, He provided a way so that we don't have to live eternally separated from the goodness of God, and that was going to be through His death and His resurrection. When He died on the cross and rose from the tomb, He created the means by which sin no longer has the power of eternal death over us. When we put our seed of faith in Jesus, when we put our life on Jesus, we are putting our life on His power on his authority as he demonstrated on the cross. And Jesus, he doesn't play habsies with us. He's not saying, you know what, you can just give me like 50% of your life and then you can just choose to do whatever you want with the other 50%. He doesn't say, hey, 90% and 10. No, he says, no, 100%. Give me the broken pieces of your life. Put them in my hands. Put your faith in me. Repent of the sinful way you've been living against me. Repent of it and put your faith in what I've done for you. And he promises that yours is. his. He promises that he will give you that protection. He will give you the ability to fight temptation. And so as followers of Jesus, when we encounter temptation, whether it's pride like the disciples were facing or other sin, we have to go to Jesus as our authority. That's what it means to repent. That's how we're able to repent, is we go to Jesus in confession of the sin that we've done and go to him for forgiveness. And and, and as we look at this, how are we responding to God's pursuit of us as that father who cares about his kids? Are we pursuing him back? Are we running to him like a child would to his father? Or are we trying to live like a prodigal on our own terms? Are you learning how to fight spiritually under the Father's protection, or are you treating your relationship with the Father casually? And then the other aspect we see in this is when you encounter tempters who try to lead you the wrong way, who want to pull you away from Christ, we have to recognize the severity of how the Father is going to handle that, and to, to not give in, but also not to be bitter. We can often look at those uh, who don't believe in Jesus and we can have almost this bitterness against them rather than just recognizing in humility of like, wait, I was once them. I was once living in that world, but Jesus came and changed my life. And when we are able to view that, not only can we take, uh, not only can we rest in the Father and how he will protect us, but we can also look for those opportunities of like, man, how can I share the gospel because of the situation they're in, so not only are we to find an identity in being humble as brothers and sisters in Christ, but we also need to live humbly towards our siblings. This is the next major part. You'll see this in um, back in Matthew eighteen. Matthew eighteen, you'll see um, in uh, verse ten. It says. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. This is powerful. Remember, Jesus is answering the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the disciples have been like arguing about that. Pride's been leading it. And then halfway through his response, Jesus says, do not despise these little ones. Remember how we define little ones, how Jesus defined it earlier. It's those who have that childlike disposition towards God as their father, which means that we're siblings. If we're followers of Jesus, and he starts off with, we live humbly when we don't despise our brothers. Man, this is where the church often shatters and breaks apart is because instead of viewing ourselves and living humbly towards ourselves, we're living in our own pride. We're living in our own way of lifting ourselves up above our other brothers and sisters in Christ. So so this first instruction is we, we live humbly when we don't despise our brothers. Why? Because the Father cares for your brothers and sisters as much as he cares for you. So if we continue from verse 10, it says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, And one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is so beautiful because Jesus is instructing them by showing how God views his kids. First of all, there's this, this idea of angelic armies that surround those who are followers of Jesus. And he's saying, look, if you're looking down on your brother in Christ, remember, they've got angel protection, and those angels, those spiritual beings, are able to literally see God's face and be in that glory, and then they're coming and protecting that brother. Not only that, but he gives this this parable of sorts where he's giving this illustration of like, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, isn't he going to do everything he can to pursue that one? That's how the father pursues your brother in Christ. He fights to bring the lost sheep back into the fold. It's not that he doesn't care about the other 99, but he cares so desperately for those that are his that he will pursue them. So if we live humbly, and imitate our Father, then we pursue those who begin walking away. We remember that we were once sheep that Jesus pursued. We remember that the care that Jesus has given us, and we see our brothers and sisters through the same lens. And this all sets up probably one of the most famous passages in Matthew 18, especially for church leaders. And that's verse... 15 through 17. And the context is this pursuit of sheep and it's it's Jesus saying, okay, the Father pursues his kids this way. You need to have that same heart when you pursue your brothers who are going off in the wrong way. So, if if we look at verse 15, it says if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector." So this is getting at how the church operates. Beyond just a meeting, operating as a family together. There was one pastor, I believe it was David Platt, he said something to the effect that if the church lived out this passage more, you would most of the time never even get to the very end where you're pushing someone out and treating them as if they're part of the world. Why? Because you were bold enough and willing enough to pursue your brother in those first couple of steps. Because most of the time in the church, a lot of talking goes behind people's backs, but there's not direct, loving confrontation. There's not this, what Jesus has already described in the first part. He's showing us how sin tears apart, how sin is something we have to take seriously, and then just like the Father pursues the lost sheep, as brothers and sisters, we pursue one another. And it starts off individually. If a brother sins against you, go talk to them. Don't text them, unless that's like for whatever reason the only way you can communicate them. Don't text them, don't Facebook about it, don't do these things. Go to them and have a real conversation and have a humble conversation. You're not coming lording over them as if you're the father. You're coming as a sibling saying, man, I care for you and I love you and I see this sin that's breaking your life apart. And if they don't listen to you, you don't give up. You go, get another brother another sister you get another sibling and there's there's a reason for this one you may be wrong and if you go to a wiser brother or sibling they may be able to point it out to you and say guess what I think you're overreacting over this or you're not founded on the Bible when you're you're confronting on this. And that can help. But if they agree with you then you're able to go together as a family and, and go to this person have an intervention if you will, but but in a loving and direct way of saying like hey, we see you Headed this way, you're going into the danger zone, and we will do what it takes to keep you from going there. We need to let you know what you're doing. And this is based off of the Old Testament. It's based off of multiple witnesses. It's not just one person's opinion. It's multiple people who are pursuing Jesus who are under the same father. And then lastly, if your second comes with you, that doesn't change things up. The last step is the gathering of believers. But notice the progression of this and notice the heart of this. The heart is pursuing someone that you recognize that the Father deeply loves. It's not meant to be a hanging ceremony. It's not meant to be this thing where you bring up someone just to kind of like make them the poster child of evil or that kind of thing. Hopefully you've done the right response. You pursued them and if it really comes to that point where they don't even wanna listen to the church then that what they're saying by their life is I align with the world and I don't align with Christ. And that's what it means when it says you got to treat them like a Gentile, like someone who's not of the faith. But we do this all from a place of living humbly. It doesn't mean that we don't be bold, that we don't be direct, that we don't present the truth. But we're doing it in a way like Jesus pursued that one sheep. That changes everything when it comes to living out the gospel as a church. And that's the thing that when we get this, when we get living humbly, it's when we unify in the greatness of Jesus' authority. And that's the, the last couple of verses here in 18. It says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so is the conclusion to Jesus' response. This is probably one of the most cherry-picked verses of all time. Because the context is spiritual discipline of pursuing someone who's been in sin. It's not talking about prayer gatherings. It's not talking about these different things. Because hopefully you would ask the question if you're using that to emphasize the power of prayer when God shows up. Like, wait, we all have the Holy Spirit in our lives. Like, Jesus, hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is with you. You don't need to, like, grab one or two other people and be like, oh, sweet, God now is here. That's not what it's talking about. Rather, what it's talking about is when believers are unified for the right reasons, they are walking in the authority of Jesus. You see, Jesus already talked about this back in Matthew 16. He told this about Peter. And this is what the gospel does. The good news about Jesus is going to do one of two things. It's either going to pull together and pull people in, or it's going to push people away. So when he's talking about... His disciples having this authority, the keys to the kingdom, that's what he's talking about, is people will hear the message and either accept it or reject it. And he just gave this example of how that happens even within the church. That when you point people towards the goodness of God and towards living under his authority and under his salvation, people will either say, yes, I'm in, or like, nah, I've got my own way of dealing with things. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24, puts it, Paul puts it this way. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel is at the center of how we live in our relationship as brothers and sisters. If we are unified in Jesus, in his position and his authority, then we will be galvanized tightly together. If you don't know the word galvanized, the best example is is there's nails and there's galvanized nails. Regular nail is smooth. You can pound that into something to build something. The reason it's smooth is you can pull it apart a lot easier. A galvanized nail has little metal bits on the outside of it, and the intent is that when you drive it into the wood, it's harder to pull it apart. You're galvanized together, and that's what Jesus does. So when it comes to us being unified in Jesus and his gospel message, it's got to be the center of our church. It's got to be the center of our families, our friendships, our marriages. Every relationship in the church must be founded and unified in Jesus. As soon as we shift from the truth of God's word, we no longer have that thing that binds us together. When we live in unity like this and we make judgment calls as the church, like in the examples of 15 through 17, it's us coming under Jesus' power and authority saying we agree on this and Jesus is ratifying it with his authority. Uh, One commentator, Douglas Sean O'Donnell, put it this way. Jesus' answer is, because I say so, if you follow my guidelines, if you bend your will to God's holy, loving, and reproving will, then you get God's endorsement and empowerment. It's a matter of transference of authority. So... Hopefully what you don't get from that those last verses is, hey, if two of us get together and we pray about getting a Ferrari, then somehow it's going to show up magically because, well, we agreed on it. It's like, no, that's you stepping outside the umbrella of God's authority in his direction, in his power, and saying, hey, we want to do this, which isn't aligned with God. Is saying, no, when you align together under God's authority as the father of the family, then you're able to operate in his authority. And that's why what destroys the church is sin and specifically pride. Because instead of us unifying in Jesus, our pride comes against us. It pulls us apart. So how do we put this into work? How do we live humbly towards one another? We don't despise each other as family. I mean, I already mentioned it before, but I will underline it again and again. It's so easy in, in the church for the, there to be this superficial relationship. And, but in, in, a, in our minds and not out loud, we can easily despise one another rather than pulling each other towards Jesus, for Jesus to be the galvanizing force. And so my encouragement is, Maybe you've been in that place. I've been there where it's easy to let, like, just frustration with another brother or sister kind of just reside in you for a long time and you don't do anything about it. And maybe you need to repent of that. Maybe Jesus has been calling you to confront someone on sin, and that's a hard place to be. I hate confrontation. And sometimes what happens is we wait so long to confront people on sin that if we do, it can often come as the most unhumble and unloving way because we finally get to the breaking point where it's just like, okay, fine, I'll just tell you when it would have been better early on to walk humbly, live humbly towards your brother or sister in Christ. And so we need to be willing to pull each other, point each other to the truth. And so if there is someone that God has been calling you to have a conversation with, Go do it. Repent if you've been holding back and go do it. Um, That, when we live that way, it takes away one of the most powerful tools of the enemy. He wants people who, who see the church, all he wants them to see is like, oh man, there's these people who say one thing and then live a completely different way. But how shockingly different is it when we're able to live humbly this way towards one another? And so, our job as followers of Jesus is to be humble under Jesus' position and authority and live humbly towards one another as spiritual siblings underneath the authority of Jesus. So, at the end of every gathering, when we're done with the preaching, Uh, We sing a couple of songs, but during those songs, we always take communion every week. Communion is that it reminds us that we are galvanized together in Jesus. It reminds us that our relationship with one another is by blood. It's by the blood of Christ, and that's thicker than any other blood. And it's, it's our way, too, to bring our hearts before Jesus, whether it's bringing our heart and thinking about our siblings and how we can help and care and love one another, and we come in, our, in repentance where sin has been pulling us apart from God. We come and we confess that sin and where we've seen Jesus working amazingly in, that, in our life during the week, where we've seen his grace just be poured out over us even though we don't deserve it, we praise God for that. So we always remember with communion, the reason we take it is because the bread represents his body that was broken for us on the cross. We take that and a cup that has juice that represents his, his blood. We dip that in, we take of it to remember where our unity comes from, remember where our forgiveness comes from, remember where our power and authority really lie. It's not in us, it's in Christ. So I want to invite you, we've got two communion tables up here, we've got one in the back, and as we start in singing together, bring your heart before the Savior. If you're a follower of Jesus, my encouragement is run to the communion table and let that direct your heart and where you need to go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this response that you gave to your disciples when you were walking here on this earth. We thank you that we can learn from this today and God, that when we're able to live this out as a a family, God, it changes everything. So Jesus, I just pray for boldness, I pray for courage, I pray for strength and humility for my church family and for myself, included along with that. It's so easy, Jesus, to let pride run the show rather than humility and dependence upon you. God, if there is anyone here who is living outside of your power and authority, trying to live life on their own, I pray that this would be uh, the day where they see that they need you as their Savior, that sin and evil are real, that there are um, eternal consequences for that. And Jesus, this would be the opportunity To become part of the family. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done for us. And it's in your name we pray.